This is an ABC podcast. On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker, and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Since the storms in 2021, there has been work in those towns that are going to be more prone to these sorts of storm events. There's been work in uh, investments in putting um, rooftop solar on community buildings, localised batteries. So yes, so you can build some localised community resilience when you have these extreme weather events. But we have thousands of homes still without power and now a potential upper house inquiry into what went wrong. So are locals sick of waiting for either the government or big business to fix their unreliable power? And are they trying to create their own, as Jacinta Allen just said, their own localised community resilience? What is that? What does it mean? What does it look like? How can communities or individuals take power into their own hands and create their own energy. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt, your co-host this morning, Tim Lee from Landline, joining us from our ABC Gippsland studios. Tim, over the years as a Landline reporter, as a farming family, uh, you know, you go generations of being a, a farmer. Does generating and creating your own power and the idea of trying to do that more, does that concept kind of come and go? Yeah, very much so, Rochelle. I think at the moment it's really front of mind. Um, I happen to be in the studio in sale where the air conditioning's broken at the moment, so it's go. a reminder of, of just how reliant we are. And, and as you mentioned in the intro there, the storms in, of, of two years ago, we had two lots of storms in the June of 21 and um, October of 21. Uh, but that really impacts on people like uh, milking uh, dairy farmers. Um, so many since that time have bought backup uh, generators and all the rest because... Industry's got to go on, and, and we're so linked with the need for reliable power, you know, freezing goods and all the rest. So, And in this last lot of storms we saw last week, there were some communities that were cut off for three or four days without um, power. So, you know, I, th- I think the, the message is that uh, we just need better, as you say, more resilient systems, mm. um, and it is so crucial to every aspect of industry from, from the ground up. I wonder how frustrating it must be, say, for dairy farmers, as you just mentioned, that they will put a lot of time and money and energy into generators and backup power, yet we saw some of our biggest supermarkets didn't have backup power, and the amount of food that went to waste, given what our society is going through at the moment with lots of people not being able to afford to put meal on the table, how frustrating that must be. Oh, very much so. We, 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 we heard about the cost of living rising recently and then you have this event where you know, there's scores of food, tonnes of it, uh, unusable or thrown out. It's, uh, it's, uh, it really compounds the problem, doesn't it, and just shows our enormous reliance on... Uh, on energy and, and power. So what does it take, do you think, for a small scale for a community to have community power, to generate their own energy? Does it sort of take everybody coming together and thinking as one? Very much so. There's a fair bit to it. If you look at the case of Hepburn Energy that started in 2007, just near Dalesford there, it was kind of almost a sort of idealistic view. They wanted to, as a community, uh, reduce greenhouse emissions and they sort of got together with this idea that it was their values. In fact, if you read their website, values of self-help, self-responsibility, democracy, equality, equity, and solidarity. Mm. So a very kind of noble 
I think the other one, though, that's the big driver for most people would be just the hip pocket nerve, which is uh, jangling at the moment. We've seen uh, about a 25% average rise in power bills since the middle of last year. So that's that's also really making it tough with the cost of living. That's one of the major drivers. And I think that's one that's really making people now say, well, let's look at it. alternative power bills or go off grid or, you know, what, what are the options other than being hooked up to a big power company? And as we've heard today, the, the sheer number of people going solar is rising. It's not getting the solar panels that's the tricky bit, though, Tim Lee. It's the battery, right? They're hard to get and they're expensive as well. So a little bit of what we'll look into today is how do we make it more affordable and accessible and how do we ensure that not only we're capturing that energy, but we can use it when we want to. So maybe as an individual, a street, a suburb or a town. Would you like to or are you trying to generate your own power? On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker and on AM radio. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Good morning, Rochelle Hunty with you in Melbourne. Your co-host this morning, Tim Lee from Landline, joining us from ABC Gippsland. And in Canberra, Alison Reeve is the Climate Change and Energy Deputy Program Director at Grattan Institute. Alison, we have seen, and this is not the first time and it won't be the last time, entire communities lose power. This was probably the largest scale that we've seen here in Victoria in a very, very, very long time. But given climate change, it won't be the last. A community is going to try to just take power into their own hands, do you think, quite literally? I think Tim's right that we are starting to see more communities think about how they make themselves resilient in the face of um, of growing extreme weather events. And that, that doesn't always just come down to um, an electricity either. For a lot of communities, um, particularly around, say, the Black Summer fires and the, the Black Saturday fires in, in Victoria, you know, back in 2009, the other part of this was how telecommunications work. Often what happens as well is when electricity goes down, particularly in, in rural and regional communities, that means you have no water either because everyone has pumps. So a lot of communities are starting to think, I think, about how they keep themselves resilient and what they need to be able to bounce back from the, you know, ride through these sorts of events and then bounce back um, and and stay together and hang together and get back on their feet. There's a text here that says since the closure of Hazelwood, Victorians now have no choice but to install their own generators. Network power unreliability is now a way of life for us. Do you think that that sentiment is starting to happen uh, across the board? I think one one of the things that is happening as the coal generators leave the system is that one of the things I think that governments and electricity companies are struggling with is how to build the replacement generation and whether and building that faster. The energy network is kind of riding close to the edge on reliability a lot more than it used to. Um, it still is rare that we get events like the one in Victoria. And I mean, I, I think the thing to remember about the Victorian one is that most people got back on, they've got their power back on reasonably quickly. Um, the events that happened or the people who were left without power for a long time, that tended to be nothing to do with the generation mix. And if Hazelwood had still been there, 
that outage would still have happened. It was to do with the fact that the wind blew down the poles and wires or, or blew trees onto them and so on. And that's just a physical sort of resilience problem. That's nothing to do with the generation mix. Is there a problem, though, with the, the big companies that own the, the power, ageing infrastructure, a declining kind of clientele? So you and I would love to be off-grid or go that way. They will have, a, a like a, a, I guess, a declining consumer base. So what's their imperative to invest in good infrastructure to make it more resilient? Is, is we, are we sort of on a downward, downward slope for those big companies that won't won't invest? I don't think we're there yet. And, I mean, I, I think a lot of people who go with sort of things like home batteries and so on find that they don't want to go 100% off the grid. Um, I grew up in a 100% off the grid house and I can tell you that it really changes how you look at electricity and it does put a huge amount of responsibility on you to to look after your own energy needs and really, really think about every single kilowatt hour of energy that you're using. For a lot of people, I think what they will do is if they're worried about resilience is that they might do something like a battery, but they will set up that system such that they will also still be using the grid but if the grid goes down, they've got that emergency battery there and they can keep, you know, keep things running in their house, whether that's, you know, their cooking or their water heater or the air conditioning. Or, I mean, I mm. think particularly for people, you know, Tim, you, you mentioned how uncomfortable it was not having the air conditioning on, you know, people for people who are sort of for elderly or um, have sort of chronic illnesses and so on. The availability of air conditioning and heating can actually be, uh, you know, something that's essential to stay oh, it's life alive, or death right? the so, amount of lives yeah. that we lose due to heat is unbelievable rochelle hunt and tim lee with you tim lee from landline of course and joining you in our canberra studios alison reeve the climate change and energy deputy program director at grattan alison i love learning that you grew up off grid has that without me sort of giving away your age i'm just wondering sort of how long ago that was and whether or not you're still vaguely off-grid and if growing up in an off-grid home has changed how you consume power and what you do at what time completely differently and and differently to the rest of us so it was a really long time ago it was back when that was very very rare and when rooftop solar was not really a thing it says you know i i was a kid during sort of the the 80s it is one of the things I do remember about when I left home was that I very quickly adapted to energy being very available. Hmm. Um, and I lost a lot of those behaviours on, you know, being very careful about using energy. The first time I, I came home for a visit after leaving home, my mum was following me around going, turn that light off. Um, <laughs> Sounds like my household. Yeah, but I mean, it, it is one of the things that more broadly people who've done studies on this have noticed that when people do get um, rooftop solar and when they get batteries and when they get a smart meter, they do get much more aware of when and how they're using energy and they do get a lot smarter about, about how they do it. So a lot of that is down to that salience that you get when you can see exactly where that energy is coming from and how much of it there is. And you do tend to, I think, change your behaviour a bit because you are just much more aware of what you're consuming. And Alison, it must be a lot more attractive now. Like the technology's yeah. ever getting oh, it's better. So it's so much better. It's yeah. getting cheaper as more people get on. Uh, yeah. I guess the bottom line is we're not getting there quick enough, though, with, with battery capacity and all the rest. But but that, there is a big push there. It it's, would be an unprecedented push in that direction now, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that, you know, 
the more that people take up these technologies, the more that they get cheaper and cheaper because it is just a scale. It's a scale effect. And batteries have been coming down in price quite rapidly, even just over the last five or six years and so or so. Um, the other thing I think that's happening with all of these systems as well is that companies are putting a lot of effort into making them very easy and intuitive to operate and being the sort of thing that you can just control from your phone. That was the sort of thing that we didn't used to have. Um, and so just that, that ease of use, I think, and mm. the fact that companies are paying a lot of attention to that does make it easy for a lot of people. Lee's in Ringwood. Uh, sorry, no, Tim is in Ringwood. Morning, Tim. Good morning. Um just wondering what could be done to try and improve household energy efficiency, like in terms of insulation and whatnot, because if you've got all these battery backups and solar and whatnot, and you're, you're just going to blow through all of that um, mm. energy. I know when it comes down to the design of homes, and I remember being told that the average, I don't know if it was Victorian or Australian home, in terms of installation and drafts, we have the equivalent of a, a double window open. 24 hours a day in terms of the amount of energy that we lose. Is that something that we need to consider? Like, Alison, if we're talking about, okay, well, we need batteries to be able to give us the heating and cooling when we need it, but looking actually at how we design our homes? Yeah, it it absolutely is. And it's actually, if you're worried about your power bill, the very best thing that you can do is look on the energy efficiency side before you jump into solar. Um, If you're in Victoria... There's uh, very good sort of information available through the Victorian government about all of the things that you can do. And I believe the new State Electricity Commission is being set up to sort of do a bit of a one-stop shop thing to help you find, you know, Mm. the tradies and so on to do that. Lee's called us as well, just near Puckapunyal, I think. Hi, Lee. Hi, good morning. We're on a farm south of Puckapunyal and we've been off-grid totally for 10 years. Our house is a normal house like you'd have in Melbourne. We have an 8-kilowatt refrigerant air conditioner. We have dishwashers. The house operates like a normal house in Melbourne. And we have generator backup that's produced only 4% of our power in 10 years. And what sort of farm? How big is your farm, Lee? Uh, we farm about 450 acres. We're Angus breeders. We run cows and calves. And I wonder, Lee, thank you, Tim Lee. I mean, there's lots of texts here saying, well, dairy farmers have got generators because the cows have to be milked. Supermarkets have insurance, so they couldn't care. And another is from uh, an anonymous text that says, as late as the 1960s in Victoria, there were remote towns in the east and the west of the state that were dependent on the town generator. And when you're talking about farming communities, have we got a lot to learn, Tim, from how farmers have been doing it pretty much from the beginning? I think so. Look, it comes down to just the uh, essential nature of of the power you require. So if you're milking cows, you know, a a power outage doesn't mean you give the cows the day off, you know, the udders are going to explode. You've just got to get that through. You've got milk in the vat so that it's going to go off. Um, As I said earlier, like we're so linked to these supply chains of food um, and keeping them cold. So it's a funny one though, Rochelle, if you think back, like there was lots of communities here in Gippsland that were, weren't linked to power um, for some time. Walla Heller up in the hills yes, didn't get course. on until 97, I think was I the remember. last. I remember doing the news story up there, you know. <laughs> well, and it's, yeah, and it's a bit like Alison says, you know, yeah. like you, 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 when you're without 
power, you get really good at uh, you know adapting to or conserving power or whatever. It's a bit like growing up with with tank water. You know, you turn off taps. Absolutely. <laughs> and when you look at how things change as well, so Phillip Island, for example, there's no gas on the island, and you either don't run gas or you'd have gas tanks. And depending on, or if you're in Walhalla, and you find ways to adapt as well. Lots of texts coming in saying, "I've got 26 roof panels and inverter connected. I can't get the inspector on site to sign off unless there's a solar system." It's so expensive. This is just useless. And another saying we spent $28,000 to put in solar and a battery to ensure that we have power when the grid goes down. Rochelle Hunt here in Melbourne. Tim Lee, your co-host this morning. He's joining you from ABC Gippsland. Of course, you'd know him from Landline. And Alison Reeve is with us as well. Climate change and energy deputy program director at the Grattan Institute. Well, we're talking about how possible is it to generate your own power, to be able to do it as an individual, a street, a suburb or as a town. Tim, there's this message here from Annie in South Gippsland, so down where you are, and it says, I feel so despondent hearing this conversation as it doesn't reflect the severity of the impact on rural communities. This storm was the third time in two years that we've been without power for more than two days, five times this time. Every time we lose all of our communications, so no recommendations to check information online. It's just like a slap in the face. No power for us means no water, no cooking, no communications, no food. If this was a suburb of Melbourne that experienced this, there would be riots and the governments would fall. Do you feel, Tim, that that's the case? That if this was something that was happening in Melbourne, there would be more urgency when it's happening multiple times to different parts of regional Victoria, that it's a little bit like, oh, well, you live in the regs, this is to be expected? I think there is a sense of that, Rochelle. Yeah, I, I can think back to when the SO gas explosion uh, occurred in 1998 and uh, Melbourneans didn't have gas and they were complaining they couldn't have showers and country people were saying, well, couldn't you just uh, boil the kettle and <laughs> tip a bit of warm water over you in the shower? It's not that hard, you know. Um, but there was a lot of outrage and, and you know, uh, I think that's right. It's, it's, they've had a really tough time, and, and places like Merbin North lately, it's just been absolutely devastated by these these storms. So, uh, and it was a bit potluck, and we've talked a bit about severe weather and, and erratic weather. Um, and that that storm drove a path right through Gippsland. Really, it, it missed most of the settled areas uh, from around here, but it did some terrible damage. Um, and the epicenter was really how is Merbu at the moment? We got a text actually yesterday from someone who lives in Merbu North and said. We're just not getting the coverage that this town deserves. I know, of course, our local ABC Gippsland team is doing an incredible amount of work. But for the wider community, maybe that listens to ABC Radio Melbourne, do you feel like there needs to be a bigger spotlight on what happened to the, to the town of Merbu? It's been an enormous community effort and some extraordinary volunteer effort. But uh, look, I'd love to see better coverage um, because these communities are resilient, sure, but uh, my gosh, they, uh, they've been uh, battered by yeah. you know, the storms in 2021 and, and now this one, as, as that, as that uh, caller said, um, tough time. This text, uh, we're going to hear from Yak and Dander. Yes, we are. Juliet mm-hmm. Milbank is the Vice President of Totally Renewable Yak and Dander, a part of the committee there. And whenever we talk about community-generated power, I always love to sing the praises of Yak and Dander and how the community got together, Juliet, to try and do as much as you possibly can. We know you're still connected to the grid, but you've still got some control when the power goes out. How does it work in Yak? How it works is that uh, we've looked at resilience measures for some of our key community buildings 
and um, we've been on a program over quite a number of years now of putting solar systems and storage batteries on them. Those batteries are typically like your sort of 10 kilowatt hour batteries. So they'll only last you about a day. It's not a really long-term proposition, but it does help you get through all those short disruptions to the power network. But particularly in the last couple of years, we've uh, got one big project that we're looking at um, and we are putting in um, plug-in generator points on key community buildings and we've purchased two mobile generators, which now means that if there's a major disruption and the power's out for a very significant amount of time, we can take one of the or the two generators to where they're most needed and plug them in and those facilities can still operate, which is obviously an incredible benefit to the community. It doesn't necessarily help the individual household, but it does mean the community as a whole has facilities that they can use and access, which could mean relief centres or it could mean administrative functions. So that's that's the core of it. It's pretty incredible, uh, Juliet. I, I guess my fascination is how you actually galvanise the community because you've got... You know, the economic question, what's it cost? You've got all this expertise needed about what do we buy? What what mm. system do we go with? And in your case, you know, your, your goal really, I think is, I'm right in saying, is to have the community entirely powered by renewables by the end of the year. It's wow. a, a huge energy ambition. <laughs> but how do you galvanise? And it must be some pretty interesting community meetings about uh, which direction to go in. Um, You make it sound very dramatic, but it's actually been um, in some ways fairly low-key. I mean, there was a very motivated group of people back at the start in 2014 who saw the possibilities in renewable energy and wanted to reduce emissions, but they could see the benefits that it could bring to the community as well. And the reality was when we did lots of talks to people and, and did some community engagement and surveys, Lots of people wanted to do things but personally or individually weren't necessarily capable. So when a group stepped up and said, okay, it seems like this is something everybody wants to do, mm-hmm. we've got a group of people who can help action this. And then it's just, it's progressive steps. It's do a little project here and another little project there. And the process of that builds up your skills and your capacity and people start to see the results and they can see the benefits flowing through and it's just a progression. There's not really been sort of some big dramatic shift at any point. It's been a continual journey along the way. And I wonder then if it sort of gets easier and easier because the more you see progress and that does that help in getting the community on board? Because a lot of making this work, Juliet, I would imagine you would kind of need the majority of the community to be in favour of something like this. Um, well, the, the majority of the community were absolutely in support of the 100% goal, but it's also not a hard sell. If you're going around to the CFA and saying, hey, we can help raise some funds and put a backup battery and a solar system on your station so that when the power goes out and you're in the middle of fighting fires, your um, volunteers can still come back here and have power, the fridge will be operating, the air conditioner will be going. That's not a hard sell. If everyone, if every town or community or suburb did what Yak and Danda did, does that kind of get the government off the hook a little bit or does it get big business off the hook where they go, wow, we don't need to really invest that much and we don't need to do X, Y and Z because they're, they're resilient, they're self-reliant. But at the same time, you've got, got to take 
control. So are you a bit... I, I'm not sure. Maybe I'm I saying mean, this I, is a glass I, half empty. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's a really good question, Rochelle. Um, I think it doesn't fully let people off the hook because the thing is that there are still assets there that these companies own and that they should be investing in making more resilient as well. The other thing is that I thought it was really um, interesting that Julie was talking about how, you know, this has been a 10-year process in, in Yak and Danda that's been driven by some very motivated people that have sort of incremented over time. Not every community has that level of kind of social glue and people, you know, with the, the time and the energy and the wherewithal to um, to do what Yak and Danda has done. So I think, you know, if, if governments or companies start assuming, oh yeah, just everyone could be Yak and Danda. It's like, no, only Yak and Danda can be Yak and Danda. Every community is different. Every community has got different motivations and every community has, I think, will, will go on their own journey with this stuff. And we need to, you know, you need to make sure that no one gets left behind in this. And I think that doesn't means that, you know, communities like Yak and Danda and so on can show us things that work. But the challenge mm. for the governments and the electricity companies is go okay so how do we make that happen for everybody because there's a there's a hell of a lot of towns in this country yeah, that's right i was going to ask you just quickly juliet yeah. um, you've got some sort of i suppose a, a bit of a template so such things as bulk buys of mm. solar panels or better knowledge of battery storage i mean is there you know a short answer about how you actually get people or towns to come to the party on this one my answer to that would be you need always to talk to the community and ask them and understand what it is that they need because every community is different and every community is expert at their local context and things as Alison said operate differently in every community so it's very much you can't take a one-size-fits-all approach and expect that communities are going to jump on board you have to actually go in and talk to them and some will need some particular things and some communities will need something entirely different and some things will seem really logical to the people back in Melbourne, but when you actually go into the community and talk to people, they'll say, no, that, that's not going to work or, or that's not what we need. So it's very much about connecting with the community on the local level. There will always be um, overarching infrastructure, big infrastructure things that government will need to handle, but you have to go in at the bottom end as well. And it's a collaborative effort. I think the thing I want to say is, Alison's right. It shouldn't be up to everybody to do a yak and dander. It will always be a collaborative effort. You need government, you need community, you need business, and everybody needs to work together and pull together to get the best outcome. This is why I love Yak and Danda. Juliet, thank you so much. Juliet Milbank there, the Vice President of Totally Renewable Yak and Danda Committee. Just finally, Alison Reeve, if everyone or if communities, streets, suburbs, whatever it may be, tried to be like Yak and Danda or like Mallacoota or like Hepburn, should there be bigger rebates, bigger incentives, bigger kickbacks so that it becomes affordable for communities and individuals, do you think, from the government's perspective? Yeah, I, th I think the government definitely has a role in making, particularly with batteries, right? Ba batteries are, like you were saying earlier, still um, quite expensive and we know that they're going to be an important part of the mix as we move to a grid that's powered by, um, you know, close to 100% renewable energy. So getting them cheaper sooner also allows us to get more renewables into the grid. It allows us to keep the whole system reliable and so on. So there is definitely a role there. But um, Juliet is absolutely right that... 
governments need to actually go and make sure that they've got the right sort of support available to suit the majority of communities. They can't really just go in with a one-size-fits-all and go, you know, you get a battery and you get a battery and you get a battery if, if getting a battery is not what communities want. So it really does have to be an exercise of listening to the grassroots um, mm. and making sure that there is, you know, the, the full gamut of the right sort of support that is focused on getting the costs down for everybody, but also building up resilience because we are going to have to cope with a very different climate in the future. And the sooner that we start building towards making our communities resilient for that, the better. Alison Reeve, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Climate Change and Energy Deputy Program Director at Grattan Institute. And Tim Lee, I love that idea that Alison said of the more we need to, or, you know, the importance of trying to listen to the grassroots. I mean, that's kind of the epitome of, of this very program, but that's what needs to happen. You need to listen to everyday people, to real people. I guess the trick there is is that every response is going to be individual as well because every town, every community needs something that's tailored to them. That's right. And I think uh, Ekandanda responded really because there was a few essential shops or even the medical centre looked like it might fold if not for reduced to savings. So it's now got solar panels and I think they it saves something. They bought their own petrol station. They so- bought their own petrol station, yeah. So, <laughs> so, so, so Thomas, there's an impetus to kind of, you know, extra incentive to to act in this way towards renewables too. This message says I've been off grid for two and a half years. It's a fully functioning house with dishwashers, air conditioning in the summer. We make more power than we can store. But in Melbourne winters we unfortunately have to run the generator. We're looking at adding a small wind turbine to our system as well. It's doable but it's expensive. We are regularly the only ones in our area with power as there are outages even when there's no storms. That's from Emma in Upway. How, like, have you ever considered Tim Lee going off-grid or how close to being off-grid are you? <laughs> Getting there, funny you should say that. We're uh, looking to build this year so uh, and off-grid too. So... Um, and the sheer cost of getting power from the available pole is that we haven't even priced it because it's it's extraordinarily expensive now to to get uh, you know mains connected as well. So a lot of people are just saying, well, it's comparable, isn't it? If if say a good battery system is about thirty thousand, um, that's about the price it'll cost you to, to link up from a the nearby pole. Well, yeah, right. Then long term, uh, it's going to save you. <laughs> that's right. Let's go with no bills and uh, uh, yeah, not be on the system. So, and that's quite common out uh, our way towards uh, you know the Bryglong area. There's, there are quite a lot of people who've been off grid for a long while, and uh, their message is that the technology is getting better all the time. Um, and uh, yeah, and uh, look, as, as we said, it's not getting there quick enough, but it's certainly coming down with, with rebates and, and government subsidies and schemes and all the rest. I think there's a whole kind of slow moving wave towards that, which uh, which is terrific. So as an individual, a street, a suburb or a town, are you trying to find a way to generate your own power? On the ABC Listen app, your smart speaker and on AM radio. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Good morning, Michelle Hunt here in Melbourne. Tim Lee joining us from ABC Gippsland. Of course, Tim Lee from Landline. Sandra has called us as well. Sandra, you're in Clydebank. Morning. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Tim. I'm a dairy farmer at Clydebank and we were spending a huge amount of money on electricity and diesel for pumping irrigation water. So about five years ago, we had an energy audit done and as a result of that, we installed 200 kilowatts of solar panels, which provides 
most of the power that we need for irrigation. Mm. But like a lot of farms, this farm has grown over time. And so it's comprised of eight titles. We've got 10 electricity meters across eight titles. And so this afternoon, we'll be generating lots of power at other parts around the farm. And we could be using that at the dairy, which is on a different title. So we'll be buying power at the dairy, paying about 38 cents per kilowatt hour. On other parts of the farm, we could say we won't use this power right now. We want to redirect it to the dairy. We would pay Osnet to use their poles and wires. This sort of controlled microgrid would make renewable energy a lot more viable on farms because, as you've been saying, it is a really big upfront cost to install this much renewable energy. Mm. And I wondered, Tim, you know, is Sandra an individual case here? When we look at what's kind of up against farmers at the moment and you can take that from livestock to grains to all sorts of farming. We're going to speak to a pig farmer in just a moment. Is it just getting too hard? I think um, Sandra's work there is just amazing. I'm I'm aware of uh, what you've done there, Sandra. Um, And as I say, I guess as dairy farmers, there is no alternative other than to have such reliable power. But uh, I, I think that would be a great case study for, for many other farmers looking to mm, how do you set it up yeah i'll but, pop it um, back on hold that might be a landline story for you tim yeah we have thought of it don't worry <laughs> <laughs> head out there well let's talk pig farming tim kingmo is a pig farmer and also from the victorian farmers federation the pig group president there tim i mean it's been a, a long time ago that you put a lot of solar on your farm and just listening to Sandra there, do you need to just think really creatively and strategically when it comes to ensuring that you've got power all the time? Yeah, definitely. We've over the years put on um, 200 kilowatts as well. And and we have some similar um, instances. I guess the good thing about our industry, we can also generate power from methane. Mm. Um, but similar situation, I might have one site that creates all the methane and a site that's five kilometres away that uses all the power, but we can't, you know, it'd be nice if there was a simpler system to be able to, you know, put it in the grid and pull it out somewhere else. And Tim, your energy uh, bills are pretty big with the piggery, particularly for young pigs, aren't they, in terms of uh, heating and uh, cooling costs as well? Yes, what, what's correct. your power bill? It'd be pretty <laughs> extraordinary. Uh, yeah, there's a fair few zeros. Oh, um, God. But, uh, but we're a, a big family operation and... And definitely, the solar has has had big uh, big impacts on our on our electricity bill, and we've gone from initially putting 100 kilowatts into last year putting another 100 on um, because we do see the benefits. Is that across the board, Tim? I mean, do you think that there is a sentiment now that if you want to continue farming, we know a lot of the times that it's generational, but it's succession involved, or if it, even as a first time farmer that you're just going to need to have that we use the word resilience a lot but you're going to have to have your own localized power resilience yeah and definitely as an intensive farmer we need power all the time because our we keep our pigs at a, a controlled temperature so we have fans so so we actually have a generator backup as well to be to cover us as well as a last resort if we do lose power and that's i guess goes back to the methane um, a business will always, if it's if it's going to um, help the business, will invest capital. And and I think our industry, I would imagine, over the next ten years, as technologies improve, I can't see why every pig farm wouldn't have a mm. methane plant. And I think that's a, a really good story for us to sell. 
Good There's on. some pretty impressive ones already, Tim, aren't Isn't there? There's, uh, I've, I've done, in fact, a story on it in Landline, but uh, the use of that uh, waste product um, and a problem product in turning it into energy is a, a fantastic outcome. That's correct, yes. And, and, and yeah, every year there is more. And, and even our governing body, the Australian Pork Limited, um, has staff that their full-time role is talking to farmers how to implement, um, you know, sustainable energy practices on your farm. Good to hear from you, Tim. Thank you. Thanks. Tim Kingmer there, pig farmer. Dr Wendy Russell is a research fellow with battery storage and grid integration at ANU. Wendy, we've heard a lot today from farmers in particular, from individuals who have got backups on backups to ensure that they can keep the lights on and that they can continue to run their business or just to run their household. Is there a bit of a disconnect with big business doing that? So we saw supermarkets not have the backups that, say, Tim, as a pig farmer, has a very big difference there uh it's an interesting question and i um i'm actually a social researcher so um i'm not kind of um researching on the energy side of things but i think backups are a really important kind of issue but there's also important issues about um the grid more generally and the kind of capacity and one of the issues i think for our communities kind of generating their own energy is that what the one of the things that the grid does is it does balance supply and demand across the grid and so at that kind of local level, it's actually really difficult to um, pr- provide that sort of um, uh, in- uh, integration of supply and demand um, for, for people's uses at different times of day and different mm. kind of seasons and that kind of thing. And so this is why some of these systems are so expensive because um, you have to kind of overbuild to kind of cover all of your needs. So I think people don't always realise the function that the grid plays in kind of providing that um, sort of support, although, as we've seen, (laughs) not always kind of reliably. Um, Wendy, could I ask you, what are the key motivations? You looked at the sort of the social aspect of this. Is it uh, purely more than economic, though, um, that you've got to milk the cows? What are the sort of the drivers that uh, have a community like Yakandanda or or Hepburn to say, right, let's, let's take autonomy here? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that kind of autonomy and self-sufficiency that you've talked about already is really key. And, and this has to do with people feeling anxious about the uncertainty about climate change and, and also about the reliability of the grid. Also, you know, there are motivations related to distrust of energy companies. People are kind of keen to be less reliant on them. But I think it's really important, as Juliet said, to also recognise that climate action is a really important motivator, particularly for community energy projects. And this has partly come from people being really frustrated that there's not enough action at a policy at a government level, and, you know, particularly in the past, I guess. And, um, you know, they're wanting to actually do something in communities. And community energy is one thing that people find is a really positive kind of constructive um, reaction to to climate change. Um, and, and that's a really important driver. But I also should say that equity is a as an important driver for people too. They want to be able to share their power, particularly um, if they've got more than they need yes. um, with with other people. And equity is a big kind of issue that we're interested in. And as a community, you can come together and it almost feels like it's more possible. But on an individual level, where does socioeconomics come into this? Lots of tech saying, well, you know, you've got to have plenty of money or what if you're a yeah. renter? So... Yeah. It's all well and good to say, well, we're going to be relying on this and whatnot, but you're going to need money. So when will we start to see the socioeconomics come out of this conversation, do you think, or will it never? Oh, look, I think it's a really key issue, Michelle, and I think that 
it's kind of interesting because what we're seeing is that there's a strong equity kind of motivation for people sharing within communities. But one of the big kind of issues, and this gets to something Tim was saying, um, was equity across um, the, the nation and between different communities because often these things are set up in communities that, as Juliet said, are kind of well-resourced and kind of engaged, but there will be communities that aren't in that position. And so we're not seeing what Tim suggested, this sort of com com declining consumer base in electricity, but that may become an issue in time. And one of the concerns is that, you know, if we've got our um, sort of wealthier communities going independent, what is that going to mean for people kind of left behind? Um, and we're, we're anticipating that as a big issue, for example, in the ACT with, um, with the gas system as we transition away from that. And so equity is a really key issue when we're thinking about community energy. Dr Wendy Russell, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Thanks very much. Dr Wendy Russell, Research Fellow at Battery Storage and Grid Integration. Nicola Heppenstall is from the Energy Centre. She's a researcher for the Insight Centre. And Nicola, not only on top of that, you are also uh, a resident of the Dandenongs. And I think if I'm right, you only got your power back on, on Monday. Do you feel like this conversation is progressing in any way? In 2021, I think you and I had pretty much a carbon copy conversation. Is it getting better? Look, some of the things um, seem to be getting better, but others I'd say you, I'm surprised that, say, petrol stations um, didn't have power backup, um, that the local supermarkets didn't have power backup. So some of the things that you just think, gosh, we would have learnt by now that we need to, as, as, you know, essential services in the community to be able to support ourselves for a minimum of three days, for instance, with our own power generation just wasn't there. So I think some of the conversations we've been having about um, Yak and Dandra and you know, them sort of saying, well, look, we invested in some of these infrastructure solutions that meant that the, the main street was able to operate. So I'm surprised that we haven't learned from the number mm. <laughs> of hits that we've had. But I think one of the other things that's really interesting that hasn't been touched on is just the cost of actually rebuilding the infrastructure all the time. So we've been kind of circumnavigating, where's this money going to come from? It all sounds very expensive. Um, individual systems are very expensive for householders to invest in. But if we think about the amount of money that Osnet is having to invest in rebuilding the network, there must be a better way to use that mm. money in some instances. And how quickly time goes as well. So Jack Rush KC, who was the council assisting uh, during the Royal Commission into the Black Saturday um, fires back in you know 2009 and he said well look we've got 10 years right to, tr to try and do something different and to rebuild differently and before you know it Tim like that decade's gone that's right and, and the, the communities are the same that's right and, and those some of those power lines were instrumental in starting the fires so there's the whole kind of you know they don't just fall over when there's a severe storm they can also cause bushfires uh, as well so there's some issues about the existing uh, yeah infrastructure i guess and it's aging and uh, all these issues which would make renewable energy alternative energy way more attractive wouldn't it nicola how's the community feeling at the moment I mean, how frustrated are they that it feels a little bit like Groundhog Day? 
I, look, I think the fact that we had the, the power go down and also the communications network go down, and even when Telstra or Optus managed to restore their towers, we did not have access to information through the Osnet website that would tell you when is my power likely to be back on. So what we could see was what might be going on at a multi-suburb level, but different time frames for the same suburb. So really it was quite clear not everyone was going to be connected at the same time. And I think one of the things that really drives a lot of the community engagement around what could we do differently is trying to move from this sort of uncertainty to a sense of certainty. Um, this sense of you've got a lack of control to one where you've got some control because it was really that that I think added to the stress associated mm. with, oh, here we go. But do you do that as an individual again. or as a town, Nicola? Uh, look, I think you've got to recognise that there are some things in um, the Danning Long Ranges that really need to be functioning for the rest of the community to be able to move on, whether they've got their own system. But I do think, uh, you know, having a like a basic generator system for every house up here just seems these days to be essential because we can't rely on the energy system to always be there for us. So, you know, I think it's a balance between what do we need for the main street so that we can go and get petrol, for instance, or we can go and get food, we can shower, that support network is there, but also what do you just need as a very minimum for my house to be able to survive? What's increasingly a seven day period for restoration? When we were speaking to Yak and Dander, it's like, okay, well, not everything might be running, but we might be able to keep the local gym running so that yeah, that's right. you can yeah. go and have a shower or you can heat water or you can stay warm or you could sleep there if you wanted to. So it's looking at that bare minimum. And, you know, when you were talking about the, the gas crisis that we had, you know, years ago now and that, that difference of thought between city and, and country, it's like, well, you can get by. So is this the future now a little bit do we think about okay well when this happens again not if this happens again you would hope there's some great lessons come out of this nicola really as you say uh, why aren't there backups at uh, service stations and, and supermarkets you think it would be a, a no-brainer to have those generators there ready to go and and you know the the sort of reliance of technology solutions um is is i think a little bit in the midst of a crisis um, overestimated how important they will be. Um, so I think that's the other bit from a communications point of view. Mm. You really are by yourself. You can expect that you will have, and we've heard other people today talk about it, no power, no water, no telecommunications. And so, you know, we really need as individuals to be able to sort of grapple with what does that actually mean and what do I need to do to prepare? So we didn't have a radio and we're going to go and buy a radio. We relied on being able to access the Vic emergency app and also Osnet to find out information. And when the systems went down, you know, we kind of went, oh, that's the thing. Always that have forgotten. a battery powered radio. That's what we say. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, we've got a we've got a generator. So we were pretty good there. Yeah. But, you know, it's just, it's a very, I think it's a combination of what's Ever, right at the together, yeah. community and what's right at an individual level. And you need both to be able to actually survive what's 
looking like increasing crises. And it's the no communication. I can remember when the, when the NBN was first launched, I, I went to the launch. I think it was launched by Malcolm Turnbull. I can't even remember now. Mm. I was being there when they pressed the big red button, you know, the symbolic big red button. And at the time, people were like, so what happens if the power goes out? How are we going to make phone calls? And it was like, well, we'll be right. It was almost like a don't worry about it. That will never happen as if we're going to lose all forms of communication. And yet here we are still discussing this decades on. Nicola, thank you so much. And uh, I'm glad to hear that. How much food did you have to throw out, dare I ask? Um, we were fine because we had a generator, but lots of people we know had to throw out everything. Oh, yeah, That breaks your heart. Nicola, thank you. Nicola Heppenstall, uh, there lives up in the Dandenongs. And it's funny, Tim Lee, this text here when you talk about how you make this work, right? And I know I keep banging on about yak and dander, but it does sort of take a village. But I constantly learn about things that Yak and Dander has managed to do. It says here, as a person from Yak and Dander, one of the drivers of establishing social ventures has been the successive state government policies of underfunding our border communities and our social assets. <laughs> the Yak has yeah. a kindergarten that was paid for by the Country Music Festival in the 1970s. And then, as we said, we've got the service station that's now on solar electricity as well. So you put on a Country Music Festival, you take the profits and you buy the local kindergarten and you're autonomous yeah pretty impressive isn't it That's absolutely what's the biggest thing for you going off grid and and power wise what's the biggest driver for you oh i just that thought that uh, you don't have to hook on to uh, you know perhaps an increasingly uh unreliable mm. uh, main uh supplier but i think the bills is the other thing i think i think the economics now are just uh, beyond question um and we'll we'll have a house that's going to be very well insulated. All the rest, but uh, the, the the thought of having no power bills is is quite delicious. Yeah, I could imagine. As always, Tim Lee from Landline, thank you so much for joining us today. From and give a big hug and hello to our entire team there at Gippsland. How is everyone faring there at the moment? Oh, they're, they're in the nice air-conditioned area. I'm just in there. <laughs> They've shoved you into the so I've lived through bit. this. Yeah, I've, I've really lived this whole experience today. <laughs> Good on you, Tim. Thanks. We'll catch Thanks you on Landline. Sure. Tim Cheers. Lee there from Landline. You are on the Conversation Hour. And, of course, the Conversation Hour is not just a daily program. Every day at 11am where we do topics like this, of which we've done plenty. So if you liked today's program, if energy, if going off-grid, sustainable homes, solar power, you name it, we have done programs on all of those. So go to the ABC Listen app and subscribe. And there are programs on all sorts of things if energy is kind of your jam and also no doubt today as you've been hearing that the Woolworths chief executive is retiring well we looked into what if you actually wanted to avoid supermarkets altogether how possible is that farmers are now no longer wanting to necessarily supply to supermarkets but if you don't work normal hours if you don't work nine to five how possible is it to avoid the supermarkets and what are some towns and suburbs doing to try and find a way that you can buy locally so we did a program on that as well so as i said just subscribe to the conversation hour podcast go to the abc listen up or wherever you get your podcasts and you can listen to pretty much any topic on anything i'll be back with you tomorrow until then take care